Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or a story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into an, a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Vanessa Hua, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Forbidden City. Good morning, Vanessa. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Vanessa Hua is the author of Deceit and Other Possibilities, a New York Times editor's pick, and the national bestsellers, A River of Stars and Forbidden City. A National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow, she has also received an Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award, a Steinbeck Fellowship in Creative Writing, and the San Francisco Foundation's James D. Phelan Award for Fiction. She lives in San Francisco, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband and twins, and she teaches at the Warren Wilson MFA Program for Writers as well as the Swanee Writers Conference and elsewhere. So Vanessa is doing all of this while raising twins, which that alone freaks me out, but fabulous. <laughs> Good for you, Vanessa. Okay, I don't know how you do it. Um, okay, why don't you give us a quick summary of Forbidden City and then we'll have you read um, the first pages, which is actually a prologue. So then we'll be able to talk about prologues. And for the rest of you folks, I've put a link to where you can find these pages um, online. So if you really wanna follow along with what she's reading or look back at what she's reading or, hey, buy the book, um, you can follow the link as well. Okay, Vanessa, go for it. Sure, so Forbidden City is about Chairman Mao's teenage protege and lover, and it is set during the Cultural Revolution. But the prologue and epilogue uh, are 10 years later, uh, on the day that she learns about his death. And by then she's made her way to San Francisco's Chinatown. Great, great. Okay, you ready to read? Sure. Forbidden City. The chairman is dead, September 9th, 1976. Outside, the people of Chinatown are cheering. They light firecrackers and beat pots and pans, chanting as they march three floors below the window of my apartment in San Francisco. Their signs say, smash the emperor and smash the party. Drips of paint spoil the sweep and curve of the characters bleeding as if shot. The cheering swells, the revelers giddy with rice wine and easy victory. No longer will they whisper the chairman's name, afraid of his reach across the ocean to America. No longer will they invoke his name to scare the children or as a curse against their enemies. They didn't hate the chairman at first. None of us did. In the beginning, he was the beginning. He dared to make the sun and moon shine in new skies, to end hunger and superstition in China, to end all that made us weak. The radio crackles with another update, calling him father of the Chinese revolution, an obscure peasant who died one of history's great revolutionary heroes. Despite criticism from other party leaders, he ordered the great leap forward, ultimately causing widespread disruption and food shortages. Throughout his years in power, he toppled one rival after another in the party. In the Cultural Revolution, he risked throwing the country into chaos. I switch off the radio, shaken each time I'm reminded how those outside of China knew more and knew more quickly than the people within. Turning away from the window, I get dressed in my restaurant uniform. After smoothing down my red satin shirt, I fasten the frog closures, feeling the pinch at my neck. 
the Ming Dynasty springs eternal at the Jade Dragon, the oldest banquet hall in the neighborhood. In the mirror, I'm hard lines everywhere but my chest. As I tie my hair into a ponytail, my muscles pull tight, my breasts push against my shirt. Here, my awkward younger self emerges, put on display. Although I might appear strong and sure-footed, versions of me compete within. A clumsy peasant, a straight-back revolutionary, a doubting missionary. In Chinatown, many lies are born from necessity. Some of us arrive in America with false identities and fake papers. Others alter their ages on their paperwork. Teenagers pose as younger than they are to gain a year's advantage in school, while their parents add a year or two on their official records to move themselves that much closer to the benefits of retirement. They may change their birth date to a more auspicious and memorable date, New Year's Eve or the 4th of July. Some invent stories about the riches they lost in China, the fine silks, the jade cups, all that the chairman took. Far from home in the city we call Gold Mountain, every peasant has a chance to transform into nobility, to have served as brave soldiers, the right hand of the highest commanders. Our imaginations give us what life never could. If you saw me now, would you recognize me? The chairman turned neighbors into strangers. No one in Chinatown knows my name. The other day, a customer told me that I looked like the girl from the movie musical, Flower Drum Song. The nightclub singer, the husband asked. The other one, she said, the lead, the one who stowed away from China to San Francisco. I think her name was May. She aimed her bulky camera at me. May I take your photo, May? She said, laughing at her joke, not realizing that she has hit upon my name. I ducked my head, feigning shyness to avoid the camera. Same sound, different meanings. May, for the permission I never granted. May, for the possibilities that once seemed boundless. And for May, the month of green, bursting and blooming that feels long gone. Though my shift won't start until later this afternoon, I hurry out. When the throng at the doorstep surrounds me, I push back, trying not to give into the crush, into the heat of their breath and their hands at my shoulder. But my legs go weak at this unexpected pleasure of the masses so long gone. A man with perm curls smears a kiss on my face. My treasure, my treasure, he coos as if I'm a child or a whore. I shove him away. I've wondered how people might treat me if they knew the truth. The curses and threats I've imagined seem more real in my life here. And sometimes I've felt as if I were standing outside myself, watching a stranger with my face. For more than a decade, I've harbored my own secrets trying to forget even you. Sometimes it feels I've entered my secrets so fully that I've lost the ability to speak them. I hope you can forgive me. With the death of the chairman, my memories of him are coming back stronger in a reckoning that's long overdue. We met the year I turned 16. Thanks. Wonderful, love it, love it. Thank you so much. And I love, so you, you start this um, with a single sentence, the chairman is dead. Um, and you end it with, we met the year I turned 16. And they make for such, first off, the first sentence tells us that something has changed. Um, and it's, and it's, and we're right on the cusp of that change. And, and so we already feel that, that something is moving, um, something is moving forward. And I love how you give us, you give us this kind of close, um, close personal descriptions of Chinatown and, and they're full of sensory details, but you also kind of almost paragraph by paragraph move back and forth between how she's feeling about it and then some background information about 
what people reading the book might need to know about um, the chairman and about how people feel about him and kind of the history behind it. And you just kind of go almost back and forth paragraph by paragraph for that, which I just think is so well done. Um, and then you sneak in this you and you're actually, we've had several authors that have been using this you, this direct address. Um, again, it's not using second person. Using second person would be if the you was the narrator. So you're walking down the street, you say hi to your friend, yada, yada. There is no I. You are using first person who is doing that direct address. Um, and then that fabulous last sentence, we met the year I turned 16. The character's got a secret. She's almost keeping her name a secret from us. That adds so much tension. And then we met the year I turned 16. And then she goes to the first chapter and that's the time jump. And that's all the hope she gives us for the time jump. And that's all we need. There's just, there's so much here that I just absolutely love, Vanessa. Okay, let's dig in. Did you come up with, you? I think you said beforehand that this prologue was the first thing that you wrote. Or one of the first things. Um, or and, one of the first things. Yeah, and let me say, like, thank you so much for that uh, careful, close reading. I, I love that. Um, <laughs> so uh, this originally began as a short story um, that was uh, inspired by this photo. Uh, we'll, you know, viewers who are seeing this um, uh, video can see it, and we'll also put it in the show notes. But um, it was Chairman Mao surrounded by giggling teenage girls. Uh, they had Peter Pan collars and plaid you know, skirts and they looked like bobby soxers and they're huddled all around him. And I was completely mystified. Um, like, how are they so close to him? What's going on? And it turns out that Mao was a fan of ballroom dancing and, uh -huh. and Julie partnered with on um, the dance floor and, and, and elsewhere. And some of them um, became, you know, at a time when party leaders were being purged and toppled, they they stayed at his side. They were in his inner circle. Um, so the very first thing I wrote was a short story. Uh, you know, no one was named. It was just the chairman. It was just, uh, you know, the girl and it's at one of these dance parties. But I was tugged back into, you know, after I finished writing it, I was like, how did she end up in that situation? How did she find her way through it? And that's what made me return to it. Um, in, in considering like maybe I'll work on this as a novel but I I sensed I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision but I I think as a journalist having covered um stories in San Francisco's Chinatown you just never knew what that granny walking down the sidewalk elbowing you out of the way what 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 backstory she had right what incredible backstories and so I was drawn to the idea of you know I will tell the story of, of, you know, the young girl moving from idealism to disillusionment. But part of that, I think, has to come through a retrospective narrator. And that yeah. prologue establishes that, um, yes, she's made it through, but survivals come at a cost. Uh, but then as the rest of the novel proceeds, uh, the prologue enables me to, uh, you know, I'll be immersed in a scene, but there'll be moments where she reflects on what she didn't know then, but now understands. Um, and also again, speaks, makes the direct address to the you. 
Right. And and we ha I have a lot of writers that are trying to do the re retrospective narrator. And it's, it can be really important, particularly if you're using a younger character, because otherwise you might have agents or editors who want to push the book to be a YA novel, which which could be great for you if you want it to be a YA novel. Um, but you um, probably wanted this to be an adult novel from the beginning. Right. I mean, did you have those worries as you were trying to figure this out? How do I how do I hint to the reader that this is an adult novel? Well, so this book took me 14 years to write. It's uh, I started it in 2007 in the first year of my MFA, um, and it, I finished the last edits in 2021. Uh, so it's actually the first book I ever drafted, but the yeah. last book, uh, the third book I published. Um, and I, I give you this to say that YA at the time was a category, but not as, you know, a prominent as, yeah. as it is now where it could have been a, um, and, you know, I, I enjoy reading YA, but, uh, you know, I was writing the book I wanted to write. It wasn't a, a, a commercial concern, let's say. Yeah. And did you have, did the threading in of the reminiscent narrative voice throughout the book feel natural to you? Um, or did you feel like, or did your editor work with you like, oh, we need to have that voice come again. We need to be reminded. Um, was that part of the process as you were editing it moving forward? Well, in the 14-year process, <laughs> there were many versions of the book where uh, it, Chinatown wasn't just prologue and epilogue. It was perhaps 30% of the book. So there would be scenes, you know, in set during the Cultural Revolution, and then it would be her journey um, to, to her reckoning in San Francisco's Chinatown and had this whole subplot with gangsters and you know a lot a lot too much was happening so I decided to pair it back um so I had I guess plenty of um thoughts already on her having you know reflecting on those times that I could then um dip in and I think it was you know uh working with my agent and also my editor like figuring out that right balance of immersing us in the scene but then when and where, say, like at the opening of a chapter or at the end of a chapter to, to sort of pause, maybe there's a section break, maybe not, where she's commenting on, on just what's happened um, before, you know, we move forward. And then um, the direct address was something that actually came quite a bit later. Um, I think even after the sale, of, the eventual sale of the book. Um, and I, it was not a editorial note from either that someone gave me directly. Um, but I felt, you know, it's something I often talk to students about, like, who do you think your audience is, your narrator's audience? Not like who's going to go buy your book, but who, you know, who you are speaking to and why um, can really shape the urgency of a narrative or shape the way a narrative is told. And once I figured out who she was talking to, um, the book came together in, in a, a new way. It felt very satisfying, like I was sinking a key into a lock and the, the tumblers were going. Um, and again, it's just, it's not, you know, the prologue is necessary to, to kind of set up the conceit that she is talking to someone. And then she directly addresses the, you know, the, this mysterious person throughout the novel and you find out late in the novel who it is. Um, and, and so that's also a, one of the 
things that readers have told me they've enjoyed, like trying to figure out who who the direct address is to. Yeah, I, yeah, I love it. And um, so it adds additional mystery. And we have that line, you know, if you saw me now, would you recognize me? I think of Cheryl Strayed. She talks about um, the idea that when you tell a story, you should always think that you can put at, at the beginning of the very first chapter, even at the end of the first chapter, um, the lines, and nothing was ever the same again. So I feel like we're being promised that here, that when we go back to when she was 16, yeah. um, in that moment in time, that that is a, such a huge turning point in her life. And it remains a huge turning point in her life, so much so that someone might not, not be able to recognize her, not just simply because she's aged, but because, she, because she's become a different person. So yeah. I think it carries that 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 weight. It carries those stakes. Um, and it just allows us to lean in closer and um, try to figure out, gosh, what has happened? How did you, did your editors and agents um, want you to work in more background and description or were you able to kind of push back on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I don't think they actually said like, you need to explain what the cultural revolution is, but say the conceit of what she hears on the radio. Um, I think I came up with that. Just, I think I received enough feedback from, I mean, honestly, even though I'm the daughter of Chinese immigrants, I grew up in the US, my understanding of the cultural revolution and its causes um, was, was limited. And so I felt there had to be a narrative way to kind of, again, maybe prime the reader for what they will learn eventually in the book. Um, but just enough context. Um, and for that matter, I think it's perfect. I think it's wonderful when people, when I've heard from readers like, oh, I was inspired to Google uh, while reading your book. Yeah. Oh, that's great. The, the novel is not supposed to stand in for everything you might learn about uh, an era. And so um, I'm, I'm glad when I hear that people are inspired to look up more. But for example, I decided to put in that radio broadcast to sort of set the scene, I think. Um, and in terms of describing San Francisco's Chinatown, I don't know if I necessarily, I, I think I was trusted by my editor and agent to sort of, um, you know, I, I've been in those tenements. I've walked those streets. Um, I've read about sort of the, the protests between the different factions. So I was able to bring all that to the page. Um, but I think one change was, again, back when there was more Chinatown scenes, there was like a, a neighbor that came by that she had sort of a back and forth with, um, but he's out of the novel and so he's out of the prologue. And so um, I had to figure out uh, in the prologue a way to set up the, the central tension and conflict that she has this secret, but also not have it be too static. Um, you know, she's looking at herself, she's getting dressed, she's taking in the scene, she heads out into the street. That's sort of the, the action that's happening. But a lot of it is interior. And again, her, her thinking about what's prompted, you know, upon hearing about the news of his death. Yeah. And yet there's so much movement outside. Um, and then her feelings about it seem very um, conflicted. Um, and it seems it, you put a lot of complexity in how we're supposed to view what is happening and the good and bad of it. And even with the radio update, um, 
I feel like there's no one objective way to describe the situation or to describe <laughs> what has happened. And you and you and you've given us that too. And so I think um, that kind of complexity that just raises our interest. That's probably why people would continue to search to to do their own research about it. Um, I think it works really well. Were there other changes that your agent or editor wanted you to make to these pages? Did they want you? And did it? I think at one point you said you had actually cut the prologue and then put it back. Yes, um, and that was, again, uh, that was part of the whole long process of trying to sell the book. And yeah. I had a previous agent where we worked on edits and I decided to uh, cut out uh, the prologue to start with her in the village. Um, and that was another version that was shopped around somewhere in that, you know, the, the long process. Um, but when I got a, a new agent and uh, it was for another book, A River of Stars, my, my first novel that was was published and Forbidden City became part of a two book deal. Um, and uh, at that point I had come to think like, oh, I wanna bring back the prologue. Is there a way that can make this work? And so the funny thing is um, with A River of Stars, there's also a prologue and an epilogue. <laughs> Initially, I had, with that book, I had thought like, oh, I want to start, um, there's sort of a cat fight between these women in a maternity center, but the feedback they were getting internally was that perhaps she was not coming off so sympathetically as we get into uh -oh. And so with, again, with A River of Stars, I, I then um, started with her arrival in the U.S. and sort of, uh, as she's trying to get through immigration and customs and her nervousness of, of hiding her pregnancy. Um, so somehow I've, I've ended up with two books that have prologues. <laughs> so. I think, I think that works well. And did you always end it with, we met the year I turned 16? Cause I feel again, there's so much confidence in breaking there. And then that creates her time jump back to 1965. And the chapter one starts, the party official arrived in early summer, the rumble of his Jeep echoing along the rutted road. I mean, you might get people who are like, I remember when I was 16 and the party official, you know, that kind of that kind of fade out or, you know, the bitter, bitter, bitter of, of using an object or using um, using something else to get you there. Or, or did you always have it like that? Because the white space is doing a lot of work for you there. Yeah, well, and I distinctly remember, I think my agent suggested it end on that line. And I, I think it might have come before uh the, the paragraph where she's mentioning like that she kind of she knows him and that her memories of him are coming back, but she suggested flipping it. And I think it was a great uh great advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you get those great readers that give you um give you good feedback. Um, was there anything else in these first pages that was really difficult for you or that you really wanted to hold on to, but you had to cut or that you found yourself putting in later or little um, decisions that you're wrangling with? Well, well you know, it's interesting uh, because this was uh, my MFA thesis, I've had a chance to, to read on campus a couple times in subsequent years. And even just last year, I, I went back and I went to go visit my thesis because I think they're all now loaded to ProQuest as, as uh, digital files, but but back then you printed it out. I printed it on the TA computer and it was bound and it's like on the shelf. 
Um, you have to follow all these awful rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but there was something kind of eerie and special, like for a book that's gone through so many edits and sometimes felt like might never get published. Uh, some of the lines from that prologue are exactly the same, the same ones that I, I wrote in 2000, uh, you know, well, I, I think I finished the very first draft in the summer of 2008, but just they're the same. Um, and it was not like seeing an old version of myself, but more like seeing an old friend <laughs> and, you know, that instant familiarity. Um, and so I, I would say, you know, aside from trying to decide whether to keep it or, uh, you know, get rid of it, that was sort of the most major thing. But the shape of it, if you if you look at what's in the library at UC Riverside, it's it's almost uh, it's it's very much the same. Right. I mean, I, I've I've um, I had a, a, a thesis advisor during my MFA and she would argue for um, really just writing with that that moment of passion and um, and energy and that's what you keep. Um, so there are some times when you hit something right off that just works really well because it's it's full of that excitement for the new project and full of that energy. Um, and then there are other people that suffer over their first pages. <laughs> for 14 years um yes. so, so that happens as well upper, but but it is but for what has emerged is surprisingly similar to those you know what I, what I workshopped in you know in, in class so great great all right we're gonna have to close up um, but everyone, you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners and other writers. Okay. Vanessa, do you have any advice that you'd give to authors about their own pages? I think, uh, well, as I said, it took 14 years, so keep the faith. Um, but also, you won't know until you've written the entire first draft, or even multiple drafts, whether you're going to keep those first pages. So um, I guess the advice would be to keep going, that uh, you may feel like you need to reach perfection with them, but you just don't know enough uh, until much later about how it's all going to fit together. Absolutely, absolutely great. Okay, thank you so, so much. And thank you everyone for listening. It's time to get back to your writing desk and time to work on your own first pages. Um, and hopefully grab a copy of Vanessa's book as well. Uh, she's calling in from the West Coast and I'm interviewing her from Cyprus. So we're having a time distance we don't know how deep it is. <laughs> but whatever time it is, we're trying to get some writing done. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>